reading now from Luke chapter 16, verse 1. Now he was saying to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and the manager was reported to him as squandering his possessions. And he called him and he said to him, what is this I hear about you? Give an accounting of your management, for you can no longer be manager. The manager manager said to him, What shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I shall do, so that when I am removed from the management, people will welcome me into their homes. And he summoned each one of his master's debtors, and he began saying to the first, How much do you owe? my master. And he said, a hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. And his master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the sons of this age are more shrewd in relations to their own kind than the sons of light. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness, so that when it fails, they will receive you into eternal dwellings. He who is faithful in very little things is faithful also in much. He who is unrighteous in very little things is unrighteous also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you true riches? And in verse 12, And if you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Okay, so this is a parable that Jesus starts to tell us, and it's the parable of the unrighteous steward. And so he tells this story of this unrighteous steward, and, and uh, um, that there was this manager who was in charge of this man's uh, 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 wealth, and it says that, that uh, he was squandering his boss's possessions. He was not taking good care of it. He was wasting his boss's possessions. And so he gave him, in a sense, his two weeks notice. You're going to be out of a job. So this guy starts to think, well, what am I going to do now? Because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not strong enough to dig. I can't, I'm ashamed to beg. What am I going to do? So what he did is he told his master's debtors to change their bill to reduce the amount so that when he's out of his job, he will have made all of these friends. So it's interesting what he did. And it says, and and, uh, uh, his master actually praised this particular act. He didn't praise with the the squandering of the wealth. It says that um, uh, in verse... Eight, and his master praised the unrighteous manager. So we have to look at that. It says he was an unrighteous manager. So that hasn't changed. He's an unrighteous manager who was not taking care of his master's possessions. But what he did do was there was one facet about what this man did that Jesus or this master now praises. And that is the shrewd acting to use money. It says, for the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. So indeed, Jesus is saying, this guy is not a son of the light. He is a son of this age. 
So again, he's not proclaiming this man's salvation in any way. But he's saying, but here is the lesson of it all in verse 9. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness, so that when it fails, they will receive you into their eternal dwellings. So he says, make friends with mammon, or the wealth of this world, so that when the wealth of this world fails, so it says, so that when it fails, it is the wealth, the wealth of unrighteousness, when it fails, because in in the Greek it's a neuter term, and, and you know exactly that it's speaking of the wealth of unrighteousness. When it fails, they, who is they? They is the friends that you have made will receive you into your eternal dwellings. So the standard interpretation of this is that you make friends with the wealth of this world and then eventually these people may get saved and they will even welcome you into heaven. Going before you will be people that will have been influenced. I will give you an example to bring some clarity. So so Shireen and I like to have people in our home. Having people in our home is not free. But it's something that we do, and we gladly do. We gladly do. Because through this, we can touch people's lives. People say, well, why do you do this? Why do you, why do you spend all this? And, it, and it's, it's not just the food. It's just the wear and tear in the house. You, you have, we have a, a maid come in on Mondays to help Shireen just spend the whole morning just doing the downstairs, just cleaning up from, you know, you get 50 people walk in a house. I know you don't notice it, but other people notice it, that there's a lot of stuff that, that, that needs to be cleaned. It's not just the cleaning. It's anytime things are used in an industrial-like sense, the plumbing goes, the, 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 the floors go, the paint. We, paint. we paint as much as most people clean, just constantly painting. But we do this gladly because this is something we like to do because we are investing in the lives of people. We invest in the lives of people. Some of these are people who know the Lord. Some of these are people who don't know the Lord. But this is what we want to do, and in fact, we are commanded to do this. It says, I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness. That's the wealth of this world. Some, some Bibles call it mammon, the things of this world. Make friends by the things of this world, so that when it fails, they'll go, these friends that you're going to make are going to invite you into eternal dwellings. Well, what dwellings are eternal? Only those which are in heaven are eternal. You will impact young people's lives. This will be impacted. So the story that I've told many times is that, is that uh, uh, I, I used to get really concerned. When I was in graduate school, we had a little apartment, and we used to have students in. And I used to get very concerned because it was always becoming a mess because of uh, having the students in. It was, it was messy and there was food left all over and students are just naturally messy. They come in to people's homes and they still put their feet on tables. You know, they put their feet on the coffee table with their shoes on thinking that it's the college where anything's okay. But did you know when you go into somebody's home, the best thing is not to put your feet with your shoes on up on their coffee table? Did you know that that's not the best thing to do? Because most college students don't know that. Nonetheless, it happens. And we don't make a big deal about it, but it happens. So I got all concerned about this. And then God spoke to me 
One day through the scriptures, as I was praying about this, he spoke to me from Proverbs, and it says, Where no oxen are, the manger is clean, but much increase comes by the strength of the ox. If you want to see the power of God, the strength of the ox, come into these people's lives, you have to have people in there. It's going to get messy. It's going to get dirty. This is part of ministry to people. It is never clean. There are things that happen. Part of ministry to people is they dump all sorts of stuff on you in the sense of of emotional things. That's part of dealing with people. Don't I have enough problems without having to hear other people's problems? Yeah, I have enough problems. But we are in the people business. Knowing Christ is the people business. Knowing Christ is dealing with people. That it pulls us beyond ourselves. Wouldn't it be much easier just to, to hang out at home and watch TV at night? Yes, of course it's easier. But that's not what he's called us to. We are to use our homes our resources for the building up of others, to make friends with the people of this world. This is what we are supposed to do so that when my neighbor comes in, the easiest thing to do when a new person moves across the street is to just say, well, they mind their business and I'll mind mine. That is the easiest thing to do. But what Christ calls us to, our Lord calls us to go and to specifically meet them. And to reach out to them. And Shireen will usually make something and we'll go over and we'll meet them. We'll say hi and we, we, we get to know them. This is what you are called to do. This isn't just for me. Did you know that? This is for us. This is what you are called to do. Okay, well one day when I have a big house, then I'll do it. Wrong. You won't do it if you're not doing it now. Do you have a place to stay? Do you have a room? Do you have a room? You have, you, you have some place where you go to in the evenings. You can invite people in there. When I was a graduate student, I lived in a graduate student dorm before I was married, and, we, and I used to invite people into my room. And we'd sit around and I'd intentionally invite people in and i have little things to serve them. You can do this. And I had a, a, a little pot that, that I could warm, warm up uh, water, and so we could make tea or we could make coffee. And, and, uh, um, and I had chocolate, and I had hot chocolate, and I served people in that little room. Prior to that, was when I was an undergrad, I lived in a home with, with a bunch of other Christian guys, and we purposefully used that house to invite people in. And it wasn't a fancy house. And my dorm room wasn't a fancy dorm room. But nobody ever complained when they came in. They didn't say, wow, this is a, this is a tiny room. They never said that. It was, that was never the topic. This is what he calls us to. And you say, well, where am I going to get the money to do this? Your own money. It's not from the church. You get your own money and you do this. You say, well, I don't have enough. You have enough. You have enough to do something. To do something at some capacity. This is what he calls us to. You want to walk as a disciple or don't you? If you don't want to walk as a disciple of Jesus, disregard this. But discipleship has a cost. Walking as a disciple of Jesus Christ has a cost. And it costs you money. And it costs you time. And you do this. Well, you know, I'm, I'm just naturally shy, you might say. Well, I, Jim Tour, I am naturally shy. And you go, oh, come on. No, this is real. I am naturally shy. 
to myself, I would sit, I would stand in the corner in a crowd. If I would even go to a party, I would stand in the corner and just watch. But I am called to go out and to be relational with people. This is what he calls us to, so we can't hide behind this excuse that we are timid. In fact, the scriptures go on to say that timidity is not of the heart of God. God has not called us in a spirit of timidity, but in boldness He's called us, it says in 1 Timothy. He's called us in boldness, not to timidity. So that if we are naturally introverted and timid, we are still obliged to step out and to get to know people. Maybe you're not called to stand before thousands of people. Maybe it's just to get to know a few people, but you are called to do this. Do you want to walk as a disciple? This is what he calls you to. There's a cost involved. Then he goes on to say, in verse 10, He who is faithful in very little things is faithful also in much. He who is unrighteous in very little things is unrighteous also in much. You know, there was this uh, politician that, that was running for office, and it turned out that when he was in, in, uh, when he was in his graduate school, he had amassed like $10,000 worth of parking tickets that he never paid. And now that he was running for office, it turned up, so he went and paid all of these. What's the problem? I paid it. Yeah, 25 years later you paid it. But do you see the abuse here? And as soon as I saw that, I knew what the character of the man would be in office. As soon as you say, oh, come on, that's a very little thing. And I remember with a graduate student, I was talking about this one politician. This graduate student loved this politician. And I said, look what he did. Why do you still support him when he had $10,000 worth of parking tickets and it says that he parked anywhere he wanted and he just take the ticket and throw it away? And he looked at me incredulous, like, are you serious that what he did 25 years ago with parking tickets really matters? I said, yes, it really matters because for 25 years he hasn't paid it. So he's still the same way. It wasn't until it was exposed when he's running for office that he paid it. He was unfaithful in little things, is unfaithful in much. That's what Jesus says. Do you think Jesus is right or wrong on this? This is why I love employees who care about the little things in my laboratory. I hate the ones that just write, you know, something breaks and they just walk away. I don't want them. Let them go work for somebody else. I don't want them. In your jobs, in your careers, when you care about the place and are faithful in the little things, people will see it, your bosses will see it, your companions will see it, and you will move on up. When you care about the place, this is why when I'm working out and I find these little cleaning towels on the ground in in the rice gym, I pick them up and I throw them away because I want the place to look nice. When you're faithful in little things, Jesus said, you'll be faithful in much. You start with little things. You don't walk and say, ah, it's a good group. I want to be a leader here. No, that's not the way it works. You stack chairs, set up breakfast. Do that for a few years and we might consider you for something else. A few years? Yeah, a few years. You be faithful in the little things. And then you'll be brought up. That's the way it is in the kingdom of God. It's not just strutting in and saying, hey, I'm a teacher. I think I should be teaching here. 
But you be faithful. You serve, teach a little Bible study. Let's see how you do. In verse 11, Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you with true riches? If you are not faithful with your money, you'll not be entrusted with true riches, according to Jesus. You want to be effective in the kingdom of God? It starts with your money. Okay, well, one day, when I make a lot of money, then I'll start using it. Wrong. That won't happen. It starts now. How much do you have? Do you have $10? Use a dollar of it for the kingdom of God. And in fact, to give to your local church a tithe is not a big problem. Not a big problem. And in fact, when people say, well, you know, it, it, you know, it's just so hard to give a tithe. I'm like, you are crazy. It's so hard to have $10 and to give away $1. It's so hard to buy something for somebody to help them out. You know, a cup of coffee or something. <clears throat> he says, you have to be faithful with these little things. Faithful with these little things. Now, when you graduate and you get a job, remember... There were many people that supported you on going on mission trips and the church stood behind you on mission trips. You start giving. Some of your colleagues will start working for crew or start working for navigators or start going, you know, do an internship. Now you, just starting out as an engineer, start setting aside money to give back to others. Let's get very specific. Do it. This is what he calls you to. If you're not faithful with what you do with your money, it says that you will not be entrusted with true riches. So Jesus looks at what you do with your money. And remember, just in case any of you are wondering, I don't get anything for teaching this class. So so it's not like I'm accruing something here. Alright? I'm doing this for your sake. For your sake. Because those who are generous are blessed. He says that um, in verse 12, if you've not been faithful with the use of that which is another's, who will give you what is your own? No servant, can ser- no, no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. <clears throat> you cannot serve God and wealth. It can't happen. Either you serve God or go ahead and serve your money. You cannot serve both. Now look in verse 14. Now the Pharisees who were lovers of money were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John since that time The gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is forcing his way into it. But it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one one stroke of a letter of the law to, to fail. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries one who is divorced from from a husband commits adultery. So in verse 14, the Pharisees heard him say, you cannot serve God and money. Either you love the one, you hate the other, or you love the other, you hate the one. That's what he said. He says the Pharisees heard this and they were scoffing at him because Pharisees accrued lots of money. And in fact, they equated money, and you can read this today, they equated money with blessing from God. And they justified their 
amassing of money and saying it's a blessing of God. And when they heard this, it says they were lovers of money and they were scoffing at him. Because as soon as we hear something that we don't want to hear, oh, well, that's, that's so 2,000 years ago. It doesn't really apply to me. Times have changed. You know, you know it's 2014. Times have changed. <clears throat> this is what we're, we're prone to say. When we see something that Jesus says that argues against what we want ourselves. And so they started scoffing at him. Jesus went right where they were. He knew they were lovers of money. It says it right here. They were lovers of money. And he went right there. And that's what Jesus does. He knows where our sin lies and he goes right at it. And he says to them, You justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts, for that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. You will lift up money and say that that is a blessing from God in the sense that that's what you work for and you highly esteem it. It's detestable in the sight of God. There is nothing wrong with money. Use it for the kingdom of God. It says in 1 Timothy, it says that the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. And many men longing for it has stung themselves with many a pain. It's the love of money. <clears throat> it's not, <clears throat> excuse me, it's not, <clears throat> it's not money itself. It is the love of money. It is the love of money that causes the problem. You can't love money and love God. This is what he said. It is the love of money which causes the problem. And he says, it is detestable in the sight of God to exalt it in this way. <clears throat> then he says, the law and the prophets were proclaimed to, from the point of John, uh, were com- proclaimed until John. John was the last of the Old Testament style prophets. John was the last of the Old Testament style prophets. From then came the proclamation of the kingdom of God. <clears throat> and it says, From that time, the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is forcing his way into it. What does this mean? They're forcing their way into it. They're forcing their way into the kingdom of God. What it means is that that, um, they they can no longer come forward on their own. If, If a Jew in that day and age wanted to come to Jesus, he had to deny his family. He was attacked by his surroundings. Now, the only way people could get into the kingdom of God was to force their way in. They had to break their family ties. He's saying to the Pharisees, because of you, because of you guys and what you're doing, everyone who wants to come into the kingdom of God is having to force their way into it. They're having to break with their family. And then he says, but it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke or letter of the law to fail. They had rewritten the law in the sense of repudiating it compared to their own personal likings, their own man-made Mishnaic laws. But then he goes on and he adds one other thing. He says, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. Now, I'm going to talk about divorce and adultery and and, and marriage in in a few weeks. But for right now, Jesus throws this out and you're like, huh? What's the context of this? Why does Jesus bring this up? I thought we were dealing with money. 
Well, Jesus is dealing with these issues that these men had. And what does a man think is most personal? That don't you dare touch? Don't talk to me about my money and don't talk to me about my sex life. That's precious to me. You know, you want to speak religion, that's fine. But, you know, that's just, just keep my money and my sex life out of it. And you know what Jesus says? Boom! Right into his money and into his sex life. You want to justify yourself? Here you go. What you're doing is detestable in the sight of God. And by the way, you've got some sexual issues that have to be dealt with too. Jesus said in John chapter 7, verse 7, The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. John 7, verse 7. Because it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. You can speak about God. You can speak about the force. You can say God's speed. That's all good. But as soon as you mention the name of Jesus Christ, people start becoming resistant. Hey, 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 hey. Quiet that down. We don't need any of that Jesus stuff here. Why? Because Jesus holds us accountable for our actions. Because Jesus confronts us in our sin. And he looked right at them, and the only way this could fit is he was dealing with men that had modified this law to the extent that they could easily get divorced and married another. And he says to them, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And everyone who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. Boom. This stands today. It hasn't gone away. It hasn't gone away. And we will address this. We will address it. This is why you really pray before you get married. Because this is a lifelong decision. It is a lifelong decision. Let me describe to you what's at issue here. And I am glad to be speaking to young adults, most of whom are not married. Because if I say this in a general church setting... So many people take offense because they, they failed in this area. And I'm not doing it to raise offense. I'm doing it to warn you. Because you're unmarried. Hear the warning. That person that you married, there's no backing out of it. You want to get that right. There has to be surrounded in prayer. It says in the Scriptures, that if your spouse is an unbeliever and they don't want to live with you and they want to go, you have to let them go. But you can't remarry. You can, if that spouse is still unmarried, you can't remarry because you can only be praying for reconciliation. And we'll pull together all these verses in time. But where, what he hits them with is, you divorce that woman, you've caused her to commit adultery. You marry a woman who was divorced, you've committed adultery. We don't like to hear it because, hey, it's 2014. You know, I just go from one relationship to another. It was never meant to be that way. And so when I hear people separating, I, say, I, I tell this guy, look, just remember, you can't remarry. You pray for reconciliation. You pray that you can be reconciled with her. As long as she is unmarried, 
You pray for reconciliation. And I tell the woman, as long as that man is unmarried, you pray for reconciliation. That's your prayer. You can't go dating around. It's for life. Don't scoff at Jesus. Because remember, the tendency is, when we hear something that he says that we don't quite like, the tendency is to, oh, come on, to scoff at him. That is our tendency. Jesus cares about issues in our life. And he realizes that within families, within relationships, within promises to another individual in the sight of God, these mean something. Why would he pull that why would he make that statement in that context? He said, you can't serve wealth and money. You use your wealth. And when you make more money, you give more. Give more. You say, well, where do I start? You start where you want to start, but a tithe is not a bad place. It's not a bad place to start. So if you get an allowance of $100 a month, start giving $10. Start! then it may be more. It's not when you become wealthy that you start giving. Well, when I get a job, then I'll really give. Liar. It's not true. What happens is the more money you make, the harder it is to give. Lots and lots of examples of that. That is mainly the poorer people in churches that are proportionately giving much more of their income. The more money you make, the harder it is. And then you get set in these lifestyles of all this other money. And that's why most people live at 10% above their income until they start falling into deep debt over a number of years because they live at 10% above their income. God calls us to live below our income. Below our income He calls us to live because we're supposed to be giving to others. That which you see demonstrated, Jesus said, go out and do it. Do the same. Start with your money. This is what He tells them. Make friends with this, unwell, uh, this unrighteous money, this unrighteous wealth, mammon of this world. Make friends with it. Go and do good things with this and draw people in. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for Your Word. Thank You for the truth of it. Father, I pray for these young people that they would take hold of this truth and that they would take their money, even now, what little they have, and they would use a portion of it to draw others to the kingdom of God. They would use a portion of it to do good works. Father, I pray that you would do that in their lives, and that that would grow. That they would learn to walk in a spirit of giving of their time, of their money, of their resources. Father, call them to be like Jesus. And Father, I pray that you take hold of their hearts, that they wouldn't scoff at you when you start addressing things in their lives, that they wouldn't just push this aside, but that they would take hold of it. Father, do a great work in their lives. And Lord, I pray for these young people that you would bring them into marriages that are good and healthy marriages. Father, that you would cause these young men to find godly young women, women who love you, who are selfless, selflessly giving of themselves to others. And Father, that you would cause these young women to find men that love you and honor your name. 
Father, that you would draw them into healthy marriages and that they wouldn't break at any, any moment of conflict, but they would persist and hang on. Father, I pray for these young people that they would have good and healthy marriages. I pray your blessing and your grace to be upon them. In the name of Jesus. Amen.